Someone sent me a video this week, and you just need to see it. Madam Speaker, I rise today to honor the life, legacy, and ministry of Chaplain G. William Bryan. I just knew him as Chaplain Bill. He was a fellow alum of Dallas Theological Seminary and was the most, most widely known as DTS's beloved chaplain. To many, he was a friend and encourager. To Shirley, he was a devoted husband. He was the father of three, grandfather to nine, and a spiritual mentor to many, including me and my wife, Amy Kate. I'll never forget when tragedy struck my family a few decades ago that Chaplain Brian was one of the, the first to reach out with comforting words, prayer, and follow-up. His role as chaplain served thousands every year, but when you saw him, you felt as if you were connecting with a best friend. Chaplain Bill was also known to play his trumpet with full vigor. As a student at DTS, I avoided the front row in chapel for fear that he might actually explode during the hymn, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. Chaplain Bill, we will miss you down here, but we look forward to joining you in the everlasting song with your trumpet at full tilt as we crown him Lord of all. Those who don't know, Bill Bryan was the third pastor of Grace. He was pastor seven years before spending 30 years as chaplain of Dallas Seminary, and he led worship here. He played that stinking horn here, caused permanent physical damage to all of our ears, um, and was one of the deeply loved guys. And it's kind of cool that he got something read about him in U.S. House of Representatives. Something good happened in Congress that day. So, um, uh, you know, J Julie was uh, at Covenant for many years as a principal, and so they named a pavilion after her. It's the Julie Wildman Pavilion. And Bill Bryan got a video in Congress. I'm hoping I, when I leave, you wave and say something nice to me. That's all I'm hoping for. Um, something real simple like that. Uh, Julie and I are introverts. You wouldn't know it, I know, but trust me, our home is like a tomb at times because we are introverts, and I want to tell you something about introverts. All of us introverts think we're superior to you extroverts. It's just, it's just the truth. We're all kind of arrogant. We think we're superior because you jabber on while we have enough good sense. And my dad always said to me, you know, better to be silent and people think you're a fool than to speak and remove all doubt, right? So, so it just always seemed like being an introvert is a good thing. But Julie heard a speaker this week or somewhere or heard it. I don't remember. I wasn't listening. But she, she saw something that said introverts think that they're introverts because they don't care what anyone else thinks. But he said, actually, many times introverts don't speak because they are too concerned what other people think, and therefore they don't want to open their mouths and remove all doubt. The reality is that we can actually, in our introversion, be hiding our foolishness and other things, um, which is kind of true, right? You know, because most of us don't want to know, want others to know what we're really like. We, we wear this face that we hide behind, which is the presentation that we would like to give. I've been reading a book. When you're from East Texas, you always announce that. And this one is by Brene Brown, who teaches at Cougar High, the University of Houston. And um, she has a number of great books. She's one of the most famous TED Talks of all time on shame. Uh, really a fascinating lady. She's a recovering alcoholic. I forgot to say this in the first service. If you buy one of her books, there is profanity. Um, but she is a believer and, and I think has some of the really brilliant stuff going on. And the book on leadership, her point is that oftentimes leaders are hampered by their own stuff, their own lack of courage, their own fears, their own, 
their own baggage, the shame that they carry with them. In other words, much of bad leadership is a function of being self-protective rather than doing what we could do because it takes courage to do the right thing. In fact, one of my favorite old books on leadership is called Managerial Courage by a professor at Columbia University and where he revealed that, that excellent leadership is often courageous and it's not courageous because of other people. It's the, it's the courage of count, confronting our own stuff. Because oftentimes, good leaders have to face their own fears and difficulties. And that reality is something that we all struggle with when we're in leadership. Um, people look to us, and we, we have to live up to that, all knowing that we're broken, just like everyone else. The reality is that all of us are dragging stuff along with us. In Pilgrim's Progress, it was famously Pilgrim who carried the weight of his sin. But the reality is all of us carry stuff. Even us, before we knew Christ, we, scripturally, we carried the weight of our sin. And Jesus came and lived a perfect life and died on the cross for the sins of the world and was resurrected on third day so that anyone placed their faith and hope in him can place that burden of sin on his back. And his price that he pays, pays our price so that we can have freedom from that burden, Right? But the dirty little secret is that many of us, many of us keep dragging a lot of those burdens with us. And in fact, as all of us do to some extent, until we're freed from this body of flesh, we'll always have those struggles in our lives. We'll, we'll have the lust that so easily besets us. We'll, we'll have the greed that so easily can enter into it. We'll have issues of prejudice. We'll have issues of fear. We'll have issues of shame because of our history, things we don't want anyone to know. So, uh, no, just for instance, none of us know, wants everyone to know what we're thinking at any one time, right? In fact, if they ever invent something where other people can know what we're thinking, that's a nightmare. Although some of you, I know what you're thinking right now, and I'll be through in about 30 minutes. Um, because we just want to be free of this stuff. You know, we, we want to be free of the temptations that, that cause us to be less than we wish we were. The Apostle Paul had the same problem, Romans chapter 7. You know, I, I, I do the very things I don't want to do. Because of my flesh. We want to be free of that. We, we long for that freedom. One of the interesting things about freedom is sometimes my freedoms interrupt with your freedom. And, and I see my need for freedom much better than you. The best illustration I can give you this is American slavery. Thomas Jefferson, he, he was so into freedom. He wrote the Declaration of Independence. He, he was a libertine. He thought all laws should be abolished every so many years so we could do over. Oh, boy. Um, and yet he kept slaves and, and impregnated Sally Hennings and had children by them. I mean, what a horrible... He, he, he wanted his freedom, but he couldn't see that his freedom took away their freedom. We still have a struggle like that today with abortion, right? One side says it's the freedom of the woman to have control over her own body. And the other side says, but, but there should be freedom for the baby to have a chance to live. So the, these issues of freedom, they, they define so much of who all of us are. They define so much of what goes on in our society. And, and the reality is that you and I struggle to be free as well. Free of our past. 
free of our failings, free of our weakness, maybe free of our reputation, maybe free of our fears, fears that so often define us. In other words, part of the reality is the more honest we are, the more we realize that a lot of the problems we complain about really aren't caused by the things around us. They're caused by our fears, our shame. And it's our self-protection that bleeds over into others. The gospel is, in essence, a message of freedom because the Scripture says that Jesus came to make us free. The truth shall make you free, it says at the Tower of UT. They don't know what it means, but it says it there. Um, the, the, the reality is that the, the gospel is intended to free us from sin because we drug our sin to the cross and Jesus took, for those who placed our faith and hope in him, he took our sin upon us and he paid the price for our sin and he demonstrated his victory over that when he was resurrected on the third day. It is a message of freedom. But then that raises the question, why, why aren't we more free? We're, we're looking at the book of Luke Love the book of Luke, one of the great, great books of the Bible, the story of Jesus' life. Today we're going to look at a section that is a summary of, of his ministry. It, Luke is brilliantly arranged, and he writes in this passage in Luke chapter 4 the, so that we know what's going to come in the future stories. He summarizes what the essence of the story of Luke is today. So turn, if you will, to Luke chapter 4. We're going to begin with verse 14. Can I make one other statement about freedom? We're offering regen, regeneration. Uh, regeneration is a program that was started at Watermark. They, they actually took uh, Celebrate Recovery from Saddleback Church, and Saddleback Church took Celebrate Recovery from the 12 Steps of AA. It's, we all steal in the name of Jesus. And, and, um, but, but I really think regen is an improvement over the 12 steps and CR because it, it is, is so driven in discipleship. I read the 12 steps way back in high school and, and the, the big book, and I think the, there are facts in there that are revolutionary. We offer uh, Regen as a way to walk through a 12-step program that's rooted in the gospel. It's in essence a description of what discipleship is. You know what it's really about? Getting free. Uh, getting free of addictions, getting free of fears, getting free of shame, getting fear of our past, getting fear, free of all of those things because that's what the essence of the gospel is. All the 12-step program is is an application of the gospel to the normal problems of life. So today as, as we look at Luke chapter 4, I want you to, to see how this theme of freedom defines why Jesus came. Verse 14. The mission. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of spirit. You know, Galilee is the northern part of Israel. It's where the Sea of Galilee is. And news, uh, could be literally fame, spread around uh, throughout the countryside. And he was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him at this point. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. That's why he's called a Nazarene. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. I'm a preacher. I've got to make this point. Jesus needed to go to church every week. 
I'm just saying. (laughs) And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim freedom from the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began to say to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now Jesus is is reading from Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and 2 and I think probably also stealing a line from Isaiah 58, 6. The book of Isaiah is one of the most beautiful books of the Old Testament. Isaiah was a brilliantly educated man. And, and, and the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah speak of God's judgment of the sins, not only of the people of Israel, the Israelites, but of the surrounding countries for their evil. Because one of the messages of the Old Testament is that God, because of His perfect righteousness, cannot tolerate evil. He cannot compromise who He is by embracing our evil. And, and therefore, first 39 chapters are, are, are a testimony to God's unwillingness to tolerate it and bring punishment hopefully what? To turn people back to him. And then beginning in chapter 40 through verse 6, chapter 66, there's the message of of salvation that he promises. And, And you have these multiple passages like Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 53 that speak of the suffering servant, this messianic figure who will come and bring salvation. The first aspect of salvation which they understood in this prophetic material is that he would bring salvation from the Babylonian captivity. The nation of Israel had been drugged off in captivity. They were experiencing ruthless abuse at the hands of the Babylonians, and they understood it to be political and economic. We will be freed. We will be finally set free so that we can experience what God promised the nation of Israel. That is, we would be great. And so Jesus reads this, and they immediately know what, he's, what the book of Isaiah is talking about. And many of them are beginning to think, you think he is the Messiah, the one who has promised, who will finally fulfill all of those promises that were made to Israel. And, you know, all the way in Genesis 12 and Genesis 13 and Genesis 17, the Abrahamic covenant and 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant and Jeremiah 31, the new covenant, all of these promises to the nation of Israel of the freedom that God will give to his people when they place their trust in him. And so these Israelites hear it and their ears stand up and their eyes light up because they think he's promising political freedom. But notice in the passage, there's more to Now, a couple of things. Notice that there's very individual emphasis in this. The blind shall be given sight. The oppressed will be given freedom. In other words, as you read this, much of what is promised is that, that Jesus, we believe, the Messiah, this promised one, will bring individual freedom from all kinds of oppression, whether from without or from within. Freedom from disease, freedom from evil, freedom from all that oppresses. But let me give you a little explanation of what happens in the prophetic literature of the Old Testament. Oftentimes there's immediate fulfillment. Isaiah is promising the people of Israel will be brought back after the captivity, and that is fulfilled. But there is also a secondary, a future fulfillment. In this case, that there will be a king after the order, like a descendant of David, who will come and be the Messiah. 
And Jesus is, is reading this, and they understand that this salvation that Isaiah is speaking to is not only political and economic, but it is spiritual, and that he may be able, well be saying that he is that Messiah to bring that freedom from sin. Ironically, when Jesus is reading it, there's a secondary fulfillment yet future because he's coming as Messiah to bring salvation from sin, but he will not come as the king to establish the kingdom till a future time. And he'll speak of the kingdom of God later on. So Jesus reads this, and these are words that resonate because just as then, all of us are enslaved to something, right? All of, us, all of us have struggles with things around us and things within us. All of us lack freedom that we long for. If you're blind, you want to be able to see. If you're poor and oppressed, you want, you want to be made free and to have the needs to meet your needs. But all of us... All of us struggle with things. Uh, on a deeper level, all of us have fears that we drag around with us. The book by Brene Brown makes an eloquent point of how often bad leadership is a function of leaders who are operating out of fear rather than for the mission. All of us have shame. We don't want to be embarrassed. We, we don't want people to see who we really are. We don't people to, want people to know what we've really done. We, we all struggle with shame. We all have inadequacy. We're all bluffing, right? A quick story, when Julie became principal at, at school, She'd come home, we'd talk about leadership questions, and we'd talk through her issues as she was managing the staff. And then after we'd done it for months, she finally looked at me one day and said, you're making this up. I said, yeah. She said, but I thought you knew. I said, no, I'm making it up. That's all anybody does, right? We make it up, hope it works. If it doesn't work, we try something different. We don't announce I'm making this up. We want people to trust us that we know what we're doing, but in reality, we're kind of making it up. We don't, want, we don't pe want people to see how inadequate we are. And Jesus comes into the synagogue and he opens up the prophet of Isaiah and he reads these passages and says, today is the day. The last one is particularly important. Verse 19, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Scholars are universally in agreement that that is a reference to the year of Jubilee. If you knew your Old Testament and specifically the book of Leviticus, and, and, and of course Leviticus chapter 25, which many of you are reading this morning. In Leviticus chapter 25, there is the year of Jubilee. Every seven years in God's law, the nation of Israel was called upon to have a sabbatical year. That's when preachers take time off. But in the nation of Israel, the point of it was that, that they would not plant the crops. God would provide, and they'd have to trust God for that whole year. And it allowed the land to be replenished and allowed them to experience trusting God in a whole new way. And then after seven sabbatical years, the 50th year, they were called to have a year of jubilee. And the year of jubilee was two years in a row when they took a break, and the land took a break, and God provided. We don't know if Israel ever celebrated the year of jubilee, but if you just hear about that, you've missed the bus part. 
The year of Jubilee points to the salvation that God offers and the freedom He gives because on the 50th year, some things happen which are radical. Now, I believe the Old Testament law is essentially a capitalistic system. There was personal ownership of property. There was the consequences. It's essentially a capitalistic system. But, it, but, but God had brilliant provisions to care for people. Uh, many of you know that uh, from the book of Ruth that they allowed for the poor to glean. They could go to the corners of the field, and the owner wasn't allowed to glean from the crop. In other words, to pick up the extra grain. And the poor were given the dignity of going to work for themselves by the provision of that extra grain. And that gleaning was a way to care for people but allow them to have dignity. But the year of Jubilee is a deal breaker. It's incredible. You know what in the year of Jubilee? All debts were forgiven. So they all looked on their calendar two years out. They took out 30-year loans. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. And if a family had lost its, its inherited land, because when they came into Israel, God assigned all the land to all the tribes of Israel except the Levites. If they had lost that land, it returned to the family. So every family had a chance to start over. In other words, it was a system that rewarded working hard and, and, and taught you to accept responsibility for yourself, and yet was also a system that provided for those that needed help and ultimately gave everyone a chance to move forward. Brilliant. Who would have thought that God would know how to do it better than we do? And so here, Jesus is alluding to the year of Jubilee and says, this is the time when all the debts are going to get paid, when people are really going to be made free. And he hands back the scroll and says, it's today. It's today. And everyone was impressed. But in verses 22 through 30, we find the resistance. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they said? Now, that is at once an, a, a statement of encouragement and a dig because they would say, wow, look at what the carpenter's son has accomplished. They also may be reminding themselves, isn't he the one that his birth had some weird stuff with it? And Jesus said to them, surely you will quote the proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we heard that you did in Capernaum. Uh, Surely you'll say, now that you're home, son, we want all those benefits. If we're blind, we want to be made see. If we're poor, we want to be given gifts. If we're oppressed, we want freedom. We want all of that right now. We're making demands that you fix our lives. And Jesus gives a very frustrating response. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there were, it was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to the widow of Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. That's reference to 1 Kings 17, 2 Kings 5. Two instances in Israel... When God chose not to give a blessing to the nation of Israel, but instead gave it to someone who was outside of Israel. This is particularly important because, see, they had translated all of the prophecies related to the Messiah to be for their personal national benefit. And he says, no, it's not just that. 
God chooses people that aren't Israelites, guys. God's grace extends to people not just because they're Jews. Remember he had said earlier that the Lord can turn stones into sons of Abraham. Just being an Israelite's not enough. There's, there's more to this story than your birthright, how you were born. Well, that makes them really happy. Verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this, and they got up and drove him out of town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. And he walked through the crowd and went on his own way. They were ready to kill him. They were just, just a little bit earlier, they were ready to carry him through the streets in, on a parade. What, what's, what changed? Jesus wasn't doing for them what they demanded he do. So they wanted the freedom, him to provide the freedom that they demanded, not the freedom that he necessarily came to offer. Look at his message, verses 31 to 44. So he went down to Capernaum. If you go with us to Israel, we still have room. April 30th, not a sales timic, just reminding you, you will go with us to the town of Capernaum. It's one of my favorite stops. The old synagogue floor dating back to the time of Christ is still there, and the traditional site of Peter's mother's house is still there as well, where this miracle occurs. It's one of the coolest towns we go to. Um, and on the Sabbath, he taught the people. And they were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. By the way, scholars blow it completely on this because scholars say he spoke as one with authority, and that's what it meant. In other words, it's how he said it that made him have authority. I can speak with authority about things about which I know nothing. Ask my wife, you know? I mean, that's, that's part of what we do. You know, we say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And sometimes after you've been married a long time, your wife will look at you and say, you have no idea what you're talking about. And you say, I know, but it sounded good. If it isn't true, it ought to be, as John Wayne once said. Um, the, their sense in which Jesus had authority is they were speculating based on what they had read in the Scriptures and by the rabbis. Jesus has authority because he knows. He has experienced God the Father. He knows the spiritual reality. It's not theological speculation. It is rooted in the truth, the knowledge of absolute experience. So he spoke with authority because he knew he was right. Verse 33, and in the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, go away. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Jesus doesn't like devils, demons, revealing who he is because that's not the best reference, if you know what I'm saying. Come out of him, and the demon went down, threw the man down before them all, and came out without injuring him. You know why that last phrase is important? Evil is always harmful. I used to tell my kids, kids sin is always stupid. It feels smart. At the time, it even lies to tell you it feels good. But it's always stupid, and it always brings harm. God loves you so much that everything he commanded about you is for your benefit. Now, in our immaturity and in our lack of knowledge, we may think he's just ruining our lives, 
right? But the reality is what God tells us because he knows and because he loves is absolutely for our good. And Satan, everything he asks us to do as the angel of light, it will always appear good, but it's always destructive. So the abuse of alcohol, the abuse of drugs, sounds like it's going to be good, but what does it do? It destroys our life. Lust sounds like it can bring pleasure, but what does it do? It brings destruction. Greed sounds like as I mass things, no matter what cost it takes, sounds good, but what does it do? It can hurt other people. The reality is sin is always destructive. It's always stupid. God's Word is always a blessing, is always for our best. Now, can God bless us even in our brokenness? Absolutely. That's what the gospel does. Thank God His mercy and grace still falls in love on us as we fail. But don't be confused. That doesn't mean that it's good to ignore His Word because Satan always is seeking to destroy us. That's what he likes. Verse 36, all the people were amazed and said to each other, what words these are? With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits, and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding areas. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon, Simon Peter. And now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and she got up at once and began to wait on them. And at sunset, they brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness and laying their hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of the people shouting, you are the son of God, but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. And at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place and the people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Jericho, of Judas. So he announces from reading Isaiah 61 what his ministry is to come, to give freedom. They reject him because the freedom's not on the terms that they want. In this last section, in the summary of his ministry, he does exactly what he said he would do. He comes and heals the blind. He frees the captive. He brings the blessings that they long for and that he had promised. And then he says again, I've got to go tell people about the kingdom. And there's a tension there because they, they want a kingdom. But they want a kingdom that, that fixes all the problems around them. You know, they want Rome to get out of their business. They want, they want the government to be fixed. They want the society to be fixed. But at this point in Jesus' ministry, what does he come to do? He comes to fix the evil within us. You know why we all want to talk about the dangers of society or dangers of government or dangers of uh, this and dangers of that? Because they're all outside of us. But the, the first problem with evil is us. Our flesh. So the, the nature of the gospel is that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, and took on the punishment for all of our sins and was resurrected on the third day so that anyone who places their hope in him, anyone who gives up 
themselves to him. He provides freedom from those sins. But men and women, the truth is that many of us who are Christians, we still are dragging, we still drag around that stuff, right? If the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 still struggles with it, his flesh, so do we. And and fixing the government. Even fixing our family isn't the whole deal. Ultimately, the, the beginning of the deal is, is here. Freedom from our sin. Freedom from our shame. Freedom from our fear. Freedom from our hurt. Freedom from those burdens that we all drag around all day long. Jesus has come to set us free so that we might experience eternal salvation, which is freedom ultimately, no question, and living eternity with Him. But for those of us who are followers of Christ, if we stop there, we're losing so much more. Jesus wants to free us from the consequences of our flesh that, that haunt us and follow us every day of our lives. By the power of His Spirit and, the, and through the truth of His Word and the support of other believers, all of these things that are a part of following Him are designed by God to constantly give us more freedom as we lean into Him and experience what He's promised. We can be freed from shame because we know that we're forgiven. And we know that our reputation doesn't matter. It's ultimately His that covers us. We can be freedom, freed from fear because, because we know by depending on Him, there is nothing that can ultimately harm us. That in dependence on Him, at least we got heaven. And one of the great joys of my life is to visit some follower of Christ who desperately believes that they will be with Jesus and watch them embrace the potentiality of death because they know I'll finally be free. As followers of Christ, God has offered freedom in a way that many of us aren't experiencing because we kind of embraced the gospel and then we went on about our lives and those things keep haunting us and trailing us and dragging us down. But he wants us to be free indeed. There's nothing you have to fear if you know the one who's in control. There is no shame that you have to bear if the reputation of Jesus is your reputation. There's no lust that has to control you you learn what it is to depend on Him. My prayer for us as a people is that we first experience the freedom that salvation brings, but that also as we grow closer to Him, we learn what it is to progressively enter into more and more freedom, which means we have to admit we have the burdens so that we can continue to grow. The great disaster of a multi-generational church is many of us have known Jesus a long time and we stop growing. 
and all that stuff is holding us back. I beg of you today. I beg of you. I urge you. Embrace what Jesus offers. Choose to trust him and the power of his spirit. Choose to follow him and his way, which is always best. And choose to seek him. Because we were made, we were formed, we were created to have fellowship with him. Today, this is the day when something new has come. Please pray with me. Father, we confess that we struggle. We confess that we aren't free. Lord, I pray that you would teach us what it is to experience the freedom in you that you made us for. In Christ's name, amen.